Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the documentary film Filthy Dreamers explores issues of censorship and academic freedom in Florida in the 1920s. I think the politics of education is very interesting. And we know that when politicians can control the curriculum, they can control the status quo. They can control what people are learning about. We'll hear about the exploits of Gregor McGregor on Amelia Island. McGregor, kind of seeing the writing on the wall, uh, decided that uh, the next best horizon for him was Spanish-held Florida. He wanted to continue this movement to uh, cast off the yoke, if you will, of Spanish rule. And we'll discuss how St. Cloud began as a Civil War veterans' retirement community. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I remember that one of the people from our church, the little church where I went, came and talked to my mother and said, you know if you send her to this school, she's going to learn to dance and play cards. And my mother said, she already knows how to do all of that. In the 1920s, a surge of young Florida women finished high school and packed their bags for college. As little girls, they personally witnessed the struggle for women to have the right to vote. They strove to achieve, knowing that an advanced education would not only prepare them for a career, but also make them informed citizens. They're very strong women from that era, by the way. Very articulate very bright, very intellectual. They were here to get an education and do something with their lives. So those were the kind of women they were. So it's not surprising they would have been independent thinkers and maybe liberal by today's standards, I don't know. In the 1920s, a man named L.A. Tatum launched an effort to ban the teaching of evolution and other topics in Florida colleges, specifically for female and African-American students. The documentary film Filthy Dreamers looks at this challenge to academic freedom. The film was produced by Lisa Mills, Associate Professor of Film in the School of Visual Arts and Design at the University of Central Florida, and Robert Casanello, Associate Professor of History at UCF and a regular contributor to Florida Frontiers. Filthy Dreamers is a story of, it's really the, the Scopes Monkey Trial of Florida. Um, and what it does is it explains the ways in which activists, legislators, and others were trying to curb the teaching of science in the state of Florida at public universities. Mills and Casanello earned a Suncoast Regional Emmy Award for their documentary The Committee, which looks at the Johns Committee efforts to eradicate homosexuals from Florida universities in the 1950s. Like that project, Filthy Dreamers is a collaboration between student filmmakers and the producers. Lisa Mills. We start out with an idea and then Robert and I do a lot of the pre-production research ourselves to try to get a handle on 
what the themes might be and who we'd need to interview during the class so that when the class arrives in August at the beginning of the term, we're ready to hit the ground running and we know where we need to head with the story. From there, we run the class like a production company. Uh, each student brings a different level of skill to the class. Some of them are writers. Some of them are videographers and editors. Others like to do the research, and others do fundraising and graphic design. And throughout the term, uh, we work each week to uh, work a step at a time to make the film happen and usually it takes us on into the second term with some of the core students hanging on doing an independent study to see the film through until it's finished. Mills and Casanello have been screening rough cuts of the Filthy Dreamers documentary for more than a year with significant alterations being made during that period to get to a final version of the film. Casanello says that a lot happens between the original concept and the completion of the documentary. It's almost like uh, a Hollywood studio system because Lisa and I first get together, and Lisa's, I mean, for all practical purposes, like an executive producer, so I usually pitch stories to her. And so in this case, I believe I pitched three different history topics to her, and one was this one on evolution, um, anti-evolution activism in the 1920s in Florida. And what I pitched to Lisa, and I said, what's interesting about this, you know, it's, it's the Scopes Monkey Trial of Florida, but it has this women's angle because so much of the effort and focus was on Florida State College for Women. I said, we could really explore gender in the context of the evolution debate in the 1920s, and that really got Lisa's interest. And so from that point on, then we sat down and just had a, a plan. We put a plan together. Well, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to attack this? And we have a different stages really. The first stage is this pre-production stage where it's just Lisa and I and we research and we come up with themes and ideas and who could we interview and all this other kind of stuff. And then once we get into the class we have the students and usually by the time the class starts we have some materials already captured on video that, um, that we can use. And then the students sort of finish it off for us with Lisa and I operating as executive uh, producers of the project and, and directors of the project because once the class ends we no longer have access to the students and if there are things that have to be done you know we need to just sort of move on it. Filthy Dreamers explains how the efforts of L.A. Tatum and his associates to censor the curriculum being taught in Florida colleges focused primarily on African-American and female students. I think the politics of education is very interesting and we know that when politicians can control the curriculum, they can control the status quo. They can control what people are learning about. And the 1920s have been compared to the 1960s. There was a big social upheaval. Women had uh, gained the right to vote. There were a lot of cultural changes going on. But there were a lot of people in Florida that didn't want to see those changes come to the state. And so they made an attempt uh, to keep things the same by restricting the curriculum at our public universities. And they were particularly concerned about um, enforcing those changes at Florida State College for Women. Yeah, and another thing, too, is the classroom and the curriculum, all of this stuff really reflects the society at the time. And, and a lot of people today probably can't imagine this, but you'd have to put your mind back into the 1920s. And in the 1920s, you know, white male legislators would not have seen African Americans and women as equal and thus 
inherent to an equal education. And so for them to sort of pick apart and say African Americans should not be learning this and women should not be learning this, this seemed natural to them. This seemed like, uh, you know, uh, an idea that reflected um, the mores of society at the time. But of course, today we, we shrill at that because, you know, we don't live in a, a culture and environment where we say, well, people should be taught different things and people should be taught separately. But that was, you know, a product of the time. And so when the evolution debates come to Florida in those ways, you know, you have these legislators who can come into uh, Florida State Women's College and Florida A&M and really sort of dictate these terms because they believe that they're operating under, you know, a, a cultural norm that we just don't accept or live under anymore. Ultimately, Florida's early anti-evolution resolution didn't have any teeth. The legislature didn't meet again until 1925, and by then, Brian had left Florida to prosecute a biology teacher caught violating Tennessee's anti-evolution law. The so-called Scopes Monkey Trial was the first ever to be broadcast live on the radio, and it captured the nation's attention. Monkey business, monkey business down in Tennessee. The lens through which society is viewed has changed and improved since the 1920s, but challenges to academic freedom in Florida still exist. Filthy Dreamers speaks to contemporary audiences about issues of censorship. Absolutely. You know, and it's not so much of um, as blunt as it was in the 1920s. I mean, you don't see the legislature enacting any policies to ban the teaching of evolution in public schools. Over the years, there have been some individual legislators who've introduced those kinds of bills, but they never made it out into law. But what we see now in Florida and in other places in America is this effort to try and control other aspects of the curriculum, meaning things that are taught in history classes, things that are taught in, in other subjects. And we see this you know, most prominently in things like the fight over the Common Core, the fight over uh, the AP curriculum in the teaching of American history and things like this. We see that you know, people really kind of take exception to what is being taught in the classroom. And there's this idea that uh, we should not trust the teachers, we should not trust the experts, and somehow you know, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's more wisdom out in the local community over things than uh, professionals in the classroom. And I think that's where you see a commonality between the 1920s and today. Some of L.A. Tatum's contemporaries questioned his motivation for attempting to ban the teaching of evolution in some Florida colleges. Others believed that while Tatum was misguided, he was well-intentioned. Well, L.A. Tatum uh, was a fundamentalist who had very strong religious beliefs and strong beliefs about what women should learn about and what women didn't need to know about and he thought he was doing the right thing and he was just carrying on the tradition of William Jennings Bryant who had been active against the teaching of evolution in Florida before the Scopes trial. So L.A. Tatum um, can be seen as uh, the most challenging character for women in the film but at that time, he thought he was doing them a favor by protecting them. The name of the documentary, Filthy Dreamers, is provocative and attention-getting. Robert Casanello explains its origin. Well, Filthy Dreamers comes to us from L.A. Tatum himself. It was the title of one of the pamphlets he produced to object to the teaching of evolution and a variety of other subjects in Florida public universities. 
Filthy dreamers come, do you know? It comes from the book of Jude in the King James Version of the Bible. And so the, the, the passage, Filthy Dreamers, is a way to sort of um, malign people who think things or talk about things that don't have a, a rigid application to biblical thought, I think is what his perspective was and why he, he really used that as sort of a, a, a slur, you know, to say, oh, look at those filthy dreamers. And I like to think what we've done in the film is um, remodulate that or, or, or reapply that to say, hey, you know, we're all filthy dreamers, aren't we? And isn't it a great thing to be a filthy dreamer? Lisa Mills explains what comes next for the documentary. We've already screened in several film festivals. We're submitting to more film festivals, and we'll see where it goes from there. Um, the students really uh, deserve the credit for seeing this project all the way through. Uh, it was a lot of work, a lot of research. Uh, as with all documentaries, it started out a lot bigger, and the more we worked on it and the more we watched it, the more we were able to fine-tune it and really crystallize the themes and the ideas and the characterization that it brings forward. And hopefully when people watch it, uh, they'll have an appreciation for what these women in the 1920s did uh, to try to make sure that they got an equal education. But it, hopefully it will also make them... Uh, think about um, any kinds of pressures or threats against academic freedom that we're still experiencing today. Lisa Mills and Robert Casanello from the University of Central Florida are producers of the documentary film Filthy Dreamers. Hayden put together a pamphlet called uh, Psychoanalysis of Filthy Dreamers, and he used this to illustrate exactly what was going on, he thought was going on, in the colleges. Tatum took the title of the pamphlet from a passage in the King James Version of the Bible. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. He actually published two editions of his Filthy Dreamers pamphlet, one in October and another in November. Both make very personal accusations against Conradi and several professors, claiming among other things that atheism, free love, and race mixing were being taught at Florida State College for Women. Tatum's Purity League mailed 50,000 copies of the pamphlets to citizens across Florida. He actually gave copies of these to young women in the university who until that time had not even been aware that these books existed. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch original video, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. Become a member of the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, Florida is known as the state of five flags, but Amelia Island has the unique distinction of having been under eight flags. Yeah, that's right. Amelia Island, which is a small island in the very northeasternmost part of、uh, the state of Florida, in what is today Nassau County,、uh, has that distinct designation.、Uh, now we all know the Spanish, of course, held Florida, the British, the French,、uh, the Confederates, and also the United States. But in Amelia Island, they also flew the Patriot flag, the Mexican flag. And the Green Cross flag.、Uh, these last three, I think most people probably won't be familiar with, but、uh, the Green Cross is the one we're going to talk about、uh, today. And the Green Cross flew over、uh, Amelia Island for、uh, only about three months,、uh, but it was raised by a gentleman uh, named uh, Gregor McGregor, who was a,、um, a Scotsman uh, born uh, in 1786. He、uh, was at one point、uh, part of the、uh, British Army. He was an officer in the British Army、uh, somewhere around 1811. He decided to defect、uh, from the British Army, or, or he rather he、uh, resigned and gave up his commission, and became interested in fighting for uh, independence uh, from Spain for most of these South、uh, South American countries, Venezuela, Colombia, and a few other countries around Central America. It was part of the、uh, kind of a, a pan-Colombian、uh, freedom struggle,、uh, made famous by.、Uh, Characters such as Simone、uh, Bolivar, who McGregor actually fought directly with.、Uh, so McGregor is—he、uh, ended up、uh, marrying a, a, a Venezuelan woman,、uh, lived for a few years with Bolivar, and、uh, again was involved in a number of skirmishes. And、uh, he rose through the ranks of the Venezuelan army、uh, and eventually reached the rank of brigadier general. But around early 1817,、uh, there was a movement amongst、uh, many of the、uh, South Americans to. Purge their military of non-South、uh, Americans, non-native South Americans. So、uh, McGregor, kind of seeing the writing on the wall,、uh, decided that、uh, the next best horizon for him was Spanish-held Florida. He wanted to continue this movement to、uh, cast off the yoke, if you will, of Spanish rule.、Uh, and this is at a time when the Spanish Empire is really、uh, beginning to decline. So their power is is heavily weakened, especially in Florida. So McGregor heads to the United States, Philadelphia specifically.、Uh, And starts soliciting for funds to overthrow the Spanish government in Florida.、Uh, he's able to secure quite a bit of money from a number of large investors, banks, and, and other private investors in Philadelphia.、Uh, he's able to buy a, a couple of ships, travels down to Charleston,、uh, and starts recruiting、uh, soldiers, many of whom had fought against the British during the War of 1812, and were eager to、um, kind of start a new adventure as well. A lot of these these men were just interested in, in something different. He traveled to Savannah and recruited. A few more. Eventually, he had a force of about 150 men, and in June of 1817, right in the middle of summer, he decided to cross over into、uh, Florida, which is、uh, again now、uh, part of Nassau County,、uh, and heads to the town of、uh, what was the town of Fernandina, which was the only settlement on Amelia Island at the time. And although he only had about 150 men, and by that time many had defected, so it was only around 100 men. In order to fool the Spanish garrison that was stationed at Fort San Carlos. On Amelia Island,、uh, he sent his men in small waves、uh, and spread them out, so it looked like it was a much larger force. And the small garrison 
uh, at Fort San Carlos uh, decided that it wasn't worth it, and they uh, lowered the Spanish flag and gave up the entire uh, community of Fernandina without ever firing a shot. So here this man, uh, really, uh, who had no uh, skill and, and could have been completely decimated by the Spanish had they decided to defend the garrison, uh, was able to waltz right into this community, uh, raise the Green Cross. Uh, but what became immediately apparent to McGregor and his men was that they needed a source of revenue. They started running through these funds rather quickly, and he wanted to move south south into St. Augustine, uh, eventually to Pensacola, and overthrow the Spanish settlements. Um, but in order to do that, he needed money. So he started uh, issuing letters of mark and hired privateers uh, to raid Spanish ships. Uh, but he ended up getting into a lot of trouble doing that and, and realized that uh, he couldn't print enough of his own currency uh, to support this mission. So in early September, he ends up leaving uh, Amelia Island and uh, decides to head to uh, other greener pastures, if you will. Um, shortly after, there was another French privateer who came in, uh, took control uh, shortly, but the Americans soon came in and they uh, held Amelia Island sort of until the uh, Adams and Nist Treaty could be ratified and uh, Florida was transferred to the United States in 1821. What happened to McGregor after he left Florida? Well, this, it gets even better. You know, McGregor was uh, really atypical of the unbridled self-interest of the early 19th century. He really represented this kind of drive. He was the earliest of, of the con men, if you will. So he leaves Florida, and he actually heads to London. Within a couple of years, he begins um, selling uh, land rights and uh, issuing bonds for a colony in a country in South America, in Central America, rather, that didn't exist, a place called uh, Poyais. Uh, which was uh, would have been located somewhere around the, the off the coast of Honduras. He ends up raising about two hundred thousand uh, pounds in the early eighteen twenties, and uh, he has about two hundred uh, potential colonists who end up buying stakes and buying property in this uh, in this fake country. Uh, they end up boarding two ships and head to the country, but they can't find uh, any safe harbor that uh, that McGregor has described. There was no colony. Uh, they end up making landfall, try and survive. It ends up becoming an, an enormous disaster. Um, the few survivors are rescued by a, a British naval vessel, and only about 50 of those original 200 inhabitants make it back to uh, make it back to London. Uh, but McGregor doesn't stop there. So even though he's wanted by the British government, he ends up going to France, tries the same thing, and over the course of the next decade, he travels in between France and, and Britain, selling these land grants. Uh, is never he really they never catch up with him. He ends up going back to Venezuela applies for citizenship, and lives out the rest of his days uh, in Venezuela. Mm, pretty fascinating. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida's urban landscape includes many retirement communities. Many seniors choose to spend their golden years here to enjoy the sunshine and affordable living. As Chip Ford reports, retirement communities are not a new phenomenon in Florida. When Hamilton Diston's Central Florida Sugar Empire collapsed in 1895, 
huge tracts of land along East Lake Tohopekalaga, next to one of his sugar mills, became available for sale. Here's what happened next. The uh, Seminole Land and Investment Company bought up the land and advertised it for the uh, uh, the Tribune, uh, the newspaper in, in Washington, D.C. They uh, advertised for these Union veterans to come down and buy a lot in town, and also they had the option of also buying five acres outside of town where they could grow their, their uh, products like strawberries, uh, squash, pineapples, citrus, and they advertised that this was an ideal place for the Union veterans to come and heal their wounds and live a healthy life. That was Gene Witherington, interim curator at the St. Cloud Heritage Museum. The Seminole Land and Investment Company was created by the GAR, or Grand Army of the Republic, an organization that was one of the first advocacy groups for veterans affairs created in the United States. The investment company decided to name their community after the name of the sugar mill, St. Cloud, which was named after a suburb of Paris. Here's what occurred next once the veterans started arriving in St. Cloud. They all came by train. Something like 600 families came down. When they came down, they found practically nothing. But then as they began building their homes, some organization sent, I believe, in fact, actually, I think it was the government that uh, sent tents down for them to live in while they were building their homes. They built their own homes. Uh, most of the land here were pine trees. They'd cut the pine trees down and built their homes. Originally, the houses started about what would be 5th Street now to 10th Street. As they started arriving and establishing roots in the community, residents and veterans began to create organizations. They formed uh, the St. Cloud GAR on December 20th, 1909, uh, and the, the charter was granted in 1910. And in the chart it said, all honorably discharged Union soldiers of the War of the Rebellion of either land or sea service, not retaining a membership elsewhere, are eligible to membership in this post. This is the uh, Lucius L. Mitchell post. And the reason why they named it Lucius L. Mitchell was it was in honor of the first veteran who died in St. Cloud. And uh, uh, there were originally 86 charter members of the, the GAR Hall. Once they were organized, they needed to build a meeting hall. Here's how they raised the money. They sold subscriptions to uh, finance this. And the subscriptions were for $1.25 to $2 for the subscription to build the hall. And it was told that the actual cost of the hall was only $10,000. Not everyone in Osceola County at the time, though, was happy to see a large group of former Union soldiers settle in a state that was formerly a member of the Confederacy. Well, it was on a Friday night in December of, of 1914 that it was vandalized. But not only did they vandalize the, the bricks on the GAR building, but they vandalized several other places in town. By the time St. Cloud was incorporated in 1915 by the Florida legislature, there was a hotel, library, the GAR meeting hall, a bank, a school, and several hundred homes all built to accommodate the needs of the GAR retirees that came to Florida to enjoy the warmth and healthy lifestyle. 
They left the state of Florida with two enduring legacies. Well, I, I would say the GAR Hall plus the actual St. Cloud, the town of St. Cloud. If it weren't for the Union veterans, St. Cloud might have been uh, Disney East. <laughs> Chip Ford prepared that report. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Florida Frontiers is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.